This show may contain my tips for making money on Bitcoin. It won't. It also may contain explicit language, and it really might. It's Monday, October 21st, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump, President Donald J. Trump, today had a point that he wanted to make. Facing criticism that he shouldn't have announced his intention to host the G7 summit at his Florida golf course, President Trump wanted us to know that he doesn't even take a salary, like perhaps some say George Washington. Listen to how long he takes to make this point. But I give away my presidential salary. They say that no other president has done it. I'm surprised, to be honest with you. They actually say that George Washington may, may have been the only other president to do it. But see whether or not Obama gave up his salary. See whether or not uh, all of the other uh, of your favorites give up their salary. The answer is no. All right, let's figure out what he was saying here. George Washington, it turns out, was paid $25,000. He took the $25,000. It's almost $700,000 in today's dollars. Washington did try to turn down the $25,000, but the writers of the Constitution calculated that it was better to have a president who could focus on being the president than worrying about his outside business interests. Now, Trump's meandering, repetitive, defensive claim which, by the way, preceded a charge that Barack Obama negotiated his Netflix deal while president. Mm -hmm. That claim also elided other historical facts like President Hoover and President Kennedy did give away their salaries. So to recap, the president that Trump said gave away his salary did not. Two presidents that did give away their salaries he did not mention, which takes us to this next claim about George Washington. But I was willing to do this for free. And they would have, it would have been the greatest G7 ever. And I would have said to my family, because they run my business now. I don't run my business. I actually put all the stuff in trusts. They run my, and I didn't have to do that. I was under no obligation to do it. You know, I don't know if you know George Washington. He ran his business simultaneously while he was president. Many other presidents, there weren't too many really rich presidents, but there were a few. They ran their business. Hey. Obama made a deal for a book. Is that running a business? Uh, I'm sure he didn't even discuss it while he was president. Uh, Yeah. All right. That wasn't really about George Washington. That was about Trump saying he puts his money in a trust. Yes, the investment vehicle that his money is in is called a trust, but it's not a trust like we think of trust. It is not a blind trust. It is a trust controlled by Trump executive Alan Weisselberg and Donald Trump Jr., Past presidents have used a blind trust controlled by an outside party, a third party, and they are not told how their trust is performing. Now, it is true, from what I understand, that Donald Jr. actually can't let his father know how his trust is doing, but the chairman of Trump's advisory board can make those disclosures to the president, and the chairman's name is Eric Trump, who told Forbes that each quarter he would give his father financial briefings. So the kids are telling the dad, is what I'm saying. And what I'm further saying is that the word trust and the Trumps are somewhat at odds. Who knew? On the show today, the Trump administration's great and lasting contribution to society, it will be in the realm of the linguistic. But first, now all that stuff Trump was saying, what if it were said by a sage and resonant voice What if Morgan Freeman were saying it? 
What if, I don't know, Jeremy Irons at his poshest were saying it? Would it I'll stop myself there. It'd still be terrible. But it is true that the messenger does affect the message. That is the theme of the new book by Stephen Martin and Joseph Marks, Messengers. Who we listen to, who we don't, and why. I trust these guys. They have good accents. Well, don't kill the messenger is more than an idiom. It's the exact theme of this new book, both stated and unstated, because academics and writers Stephen Martin and Joseph Marks have put together a new study of all the studies of why we listen to people and who are the people we listen to. It is called Messengers, who we listen to, who we don't, and why. And when I say don't kill the messenger is the subtext, they want to get out of this interview alive. And I don't know if I could guarantee that, but we hope (laughs) to make it possible. Stephen, Joseph, thank you for joining me. Good to see you, Mike. Thank you for having us. Okay, so you separate these things into hard domains and soft domains. And the hard domains are socioeconomic competence, dominance, and attractiveness, meaning the perception of those things on behalf of the person receiving the message. Okay, let's just talk about them. So it seems to me that attractiveness, the perceiver will always be right about that. Like they know if the person is attractive. And I guess norms of attractiveness in society do perhaps change over time. But that seems like an entirely different category than competence. Because how could you know, how could you ever really know at a glance if the person is competent? You know, competent faces tend to be uh, you know, a little bit squarer. Uh, and then we we wear clothes that signal our competence. Right. You know, you know, we know that, for example, people are much, much more likely to remember a message their physician has given them if that physician has a stethoscope around their neck. I mean, the fact Look that at they, all the commercials, yeah, yeah. Of a the physician, fact that they yeah. don't use the stethoscope, right? It's almost like the patient is using the doctor's stethoscope to make a judgment about how good a doctor they are. So there are other cues that we're using to, you know, determine competence, attractiveness, someone's socioeconomic position, you know, even their dominance. Yes. So what would dominance be then? What are the cues? I understand what would connote socioeconomic position, an accent, the words you use, the way you dress, your haircut. I'm going to sing this song, you know, the way you wear your hat. But what would be the cues that would dictate dominance? Yeah. Uh, deep voice, height is another one, and then kind of posture. So big open displays, just a more aggressive sort of demeanor, more brash and competitive. Uh-huh. You know those people that come into the room and they kind of stick their feet on the table? They they literally consume the space. Right. They're essentially signaling that predispositional dominance that they have, that characteristic. Other than attractiveness, though, are, are some of these hard domains Mostly male or mostly what we consider male? Everything you said about dominance says male, male, male to me. Well, uh, there are female examples. In fact, you know, we're two British guys and we have two past female prime ministers. Right. Both of whom took training to lower the tone of their voice so that they could essentially emulate that signal of dominance. You know, lots of research that shows that that voice tonality of a politician correlates pretty strongly with people's perception of their their competence Mm -hmm. and whether or not they're likely to be voted in. So no surprise that both Theresa May and Margaret Thatcher before her both took voice coaching training to lower their voice, get rid of that kind of heightened shrillness, and Mm. as a result are elected into office. Well, 
I think maybe Margaret Thatcher as a result. I mean, the circumstances with Theresa May gaining office were much different. But it's it doesn't it, re- it didn't it, it didn't hurt her that she had yeah. that deeper, lower, slower voice. Right. Well, but it doesn't either rebut my point that these things that we think are dominant are male. Mm. The, no, absolutely. I think the that males have been stereotyped as the hard messengers and women yes. as soft messengers. Men as more kind of authoritative, leadership focused, powerful, and women as more socially harmonious and emotionally sensitive. And and these have been entrenched for a long time, these stereotypes. Um, there's, you know, both biological reasons and cultural reasons why they've come about. But I think it's moving, actually, and especially with competence. So a recent large meta-analysis of studies from 1946 till now mm-hmm. um, showed that actually competence has changed and women used to be viewed as less competent than men now they're viewed as equally if not more competent than men and is this the the perceived competence of men coming down or women going up (laughs) no it's women going up actually and you know what's interesting about this is it also shows that in other places there has been no change and so the dominance associated with men remains but do we still prize the dominance as a way to decide who's a good messenger well it depends on the context i mean if we are kind of anxious, if we're uncertain, if there's ambiguity, those are the kind of contexts and situations where we're more inclined to look to a harder, more dominant mm-hmm. character. Right. So, you know, so absolutely no surprise that those that are predisposed to be dominant often create the fear themselves. That they're literally creating the environment where their messenger characteristic will do its most work, where it's going to be most attractive There is, to me, though, another difference. Competence, there are ways to measure actual competence. And there are fairly easy ways to measure socioeconomic status. You could, we could all debate if socioeconomic status is a proper stand-in for who makes a good messenger. But competence is. If we could accurately decide who was competent, that wouldn't be the end-all, be-all of who was the right messenger. A very, an incredibly smart, accredited expert can also be wrong. Okay. But so what I'm saying is there seems to be, and so far we're staying in the domain of the hard domains, there seem to be a lot of differences between these. And one of them is that with attractiveness, if the listener sees a speaker as attractive, they will be. With dominance, I don't even know what that means. With competence, the problem seems to be accurately assessing it, not whether it itself is a accurate way to know who to listen to. Well, I think that's fair. And so we use these cues to, 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 to decide. And there's, you know, there's one example in the book, which is kind of crazy, this idea that there's an individual in a hospital that is, has got an ear infection. And, you know, the, the doctor comes along and because they abbreviate the prescription on the patient's card, instead of saying, place these drops in the patient's right ear, they abbreviate the right with the letter R. So it now reads rear. And then the nurse says, right, well, Clearly, that's what the doctor says. So let's. Go I mean, get he was these wearing a stethoscope here. at the time. Well, he, well he was clearly he was yeah. called the doctor. He's got his yeah. white coat. He's got his little pens in his pocket. And but that's the really interesting thing, isn't it? Is in that context, what would otherwise make absolutely no sense at all is now irrelevant. Mm-hmm. You know, I see this feature of competence and expertise, perceived competence and expertise, and I kind of just like follow it. You know, yeah. and, and I suddenly do these crazy things that make no sense. I mean, treatment of an ear infection via the rectal route. That's odd. Yeah, probably probably not the way to go. Is there a correlation? Is it just not a strong correlation? Is there a negative correlation with the perception of some of these traits and if the person is a proper messenger? 
Well, oftentimes, like you say, competence is who we want to listen to, mm-hmm. but yet they are not the best messenger. And I think there was a nice case that we talk about in the the final chapter of the book, where parliamentarians in 1981 were discussing: should we be preparing for? the potential for a nuclear bomb to be dropped on the UK? And if so, who are the right messengers to deliver this crucial information? And you may think that they would come up with nuclear physicists or kind of public health experts or some some kind of public official who would have expertise in this domain. But the names that were put forward were Kevin Keegan, who was in captain of the England soccer team and Ian Botham who was a top cricketer again for England and these people knew nothing about the topic they would have no idea what to do in the event of a nuclear attack but yet what the parliamentarians recognized was actually people are going to respond to them and in a time of crisis you need somebody who draws attention and who can change behavior. So that's an example of the least competent or the least qualified person being the best messenger. Exactly right. It's it's that perfect example of uh, being right mattering a hell of a lot less than looking and sounding right. All right. I want to get to some of the soft domains. Here you list warmth, vulnerability, trustworthiness, and charisma. I want to ask about vulnerability. This, I, I don't know, I don't know 12 years ago that that would be up there as a soft domain. It seems to have, we've rallied around the idea of vulnerability, perhaps as a corrective to the idea of dominance, do you think? Mm, yeah, no, they are in stark opposition, aren't they? To yeah. kind of signal a need for help to show force is is often exactly opposed. But yeah, it has a powerful effect in specifically in times of need. Humans are prone to hearing requests for help and responding with sympathy. Mm-hmm. We have this kind of emotional capacity to respond to another's needs. And therefore, we do so um, in that context. I think one of my favorite you know, examples of that is, you know, those studies where, you know, you, you go to an airport, you go to a train station and there's there's a long line and, you know, you need to make that train, you need to make that flight. And so you offer money to the people in front and say, you know, can I break in the line, please? And no surprise. Like well, that. no, people don't like to do that. But what, what, no surprise in the studies when they ran these was that the more money you offer someone, the more likely you are to be able to cut in front of them in the line. Okay, there's absolutely no surprise at all. Any economist in the world will tell you that's probably what's going to happen. What was really interesting though, was that no one ever took the money. It's almost like, you know, that signal of, hey, if you're willing to give me like a hundred bucks to cut in line, you really must be in a vulnerable situation. So my humanity kicks in and I'm going to let you cut in front of the line so you can make your flight, make your train. So all it is is a proxy for expressing how vulnerable you are. In, in that, that instance, moment. in that yes. instance, it was a signal, another one of these traits of I'm in need and I'm reaching out to other humans. And that connectedness between humans is causing something magical to happen. And, you know, I'm going to open my ears to your request. I'm going to open myself up to your message and potentially respond to it favorably. Now let's turn to warmth. When we say warmth, what do we mean? Yeah, warmth is ability to express kind of benevolence and positive regard for other people. So, you know, we're not trying to show that we're better than them like we are with the status traits, but rather actually endow respect to them and show that, oh, we really admire you. I want to be your friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has a powerful effect. You know, you see the people doing it every day in language. You don't say take care now to Siri or Alexa, but you say that to people because we need to show this warmth to cooperate and get along with them, to show them that we respect their autonomy, that we respect their welfare. And you see, you know, in studies where they've measured doctors' tone of voice, they see that those who are rated as warmer 
tend to actually be sued less for malpractice than those who take a more dominant approach, even though they're equally competent with their patients. Or equally incompetent. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. 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 So in your in your business, Stephen, which is influence at work, do you do any consulting which might recommend a good spokesperson for a product? Yeah, we do. A, yeah, we yeah. do do some of that work, you know. And 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 often the the question is, what do we say to people? But increasingly, you know, we're turning our attention to who is saying what is actually yes. being said. You know, so for example, you know, on the London Tube, uh, you know, our you know equivalent of your subway system here in New York, we have messages that talk about the importance of holding the handrail and, you know, being safe and taking the elevator with your suitcases and things like that. If you change the messenger, you can have a dramatic influence over whether people pay attention to those messages. And it turns out with safety-related messages, you know, five, six-year-old school children giving those messages over the PA, far, far more effective than the standard, you know, I'm the safety officer, please yeah. hold the handrail, these kind of things. So there's an example of how what's being said doesn't change at all. We just change who's saying it. And you can measure these, you know, remarkable uplifts in, in effect. Okay. One of the most important distinctions is you talk about trustworthiness, but that's different from truth. I see this all the time in American politics, but what do you mean when you say that? Yeah. So they are different things, actually. And truthfulness relies on us kind of weighing evidence and, you know, doing computations in our head. Whereas trustworthiness... Yes. Tr truthfulness is an objective standard. Exactly. Yes. And, 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 well, given the evidence that is available to us, and that might be mm -hmm. uncertain, but trustworthiness relies on these kind of vaguer, broader assessments of the person and their underlying latent motivations and goals and values. And so we can trust somebody even when we think that they're lying directly... <laughs> To their audience. And sometimes because they're lying. And this was, yeah. I think Donald Trump does this a lot, in that the more he, in certain situations, the more he lies and prevaricates and spreads falsehoods, the more that his people who love him find him trustworthy for doing that because you're telling our truths. By not adhering to the facts or what some people say is a fact, you're speaking the broader, more important truth, and there are others who are afraid to say that truth. I think that goes on very much. Yeah, there's almost like a questionable genius to yeah. that because- it doesn't just appeal to his supporters. You know, the, the, the fact that the underlying value of what he's actually saying is what they've signed up to boosts his credibility. So he can lie and his trustworthiness goes up in that group. But he confers another advantage as well, which is all the people that disagree with him start talking about him. Yeah, you know, he yeah. becomes focal. And we do in society have this need these days because this crazy information overloaded world that we live in. Often we assign importance to what we're just paying attention to. Mm -hmm. And so if that attention-orientated quality of his you know, misinformation, his miscommunications, is, is actually causing the people that don't support him to pay more attention to him, and as a result, he becomes even more important. Right. Messengers, who we listen to, who we don't, and why, by Stephen Martin and Joseph Marks. Thank you, gentlemen, for coming. Thank you very much. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. And now the spiel. Fox News hosted acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, who was confronted with his own words. They were played back to him. And what Mulvaney embarked upon, well, it was something to behold. First, Fox Sunday host Chris Wallace played a tape from that infamous news conference where, as you will hear, ABC's Jonathan Carl put to Mulvaney, hey, you just admitted to a quid pro quo. And Mulvaney, right there from the podium, says, yeah, it was a quid pro quo. Here's the tape. It's a quid pro quo. It is 
funding will not flow unless the investigation into the into the Democratic server uh, happened as well. We, we do we do that all the time with foreign policy. Okay, so when confronted with that moment, Mulvaney sitting across from Chris Wallace could not admit to what you and I just heard his admission to the quid pro quo. Well, and a couple of different things. You again said just a few seconds ago that I said there was a quid pro quo. Never use that language because there, there is not a quid pro quo. You, but, you but were asked I, by Jonathan Carl, is that you've described a quid pro quo and you said that happens all the well, time. And, and, and reporters will use their language all the time. So, OK, OK, let's consider what Mulvaney's argument is here. Someone else said the actual words quid pro quo. All I did was agree that it was a quid pro quo. I didn't literally mouth the words quid pro quo. Therefore, you cannot surmise that I adhere to the premise, you know, just given the fact that I agreed with the premise. So when Mick Mulvaney is asked a yes or no question and answers yes, you cannot take that as an affirmative unless he also restates the exact words in the question. Now, we all thought this was the worst way to begin your eighth grade essay, what I did on my summer vacation. On my summer vacation, I and your teacher always said, can you start a little better? No. If you're Mick Mulvaney, the answer is no. I did it a better way. I was wrong. Stupid me. Also, let's say when asked, do you take this man to be your lawful wedded husband? And you said, I do. That doesn't count. You need to say, I do take this man to be my lawful wedded husband. Good follow-up question to acting chief of staff Mick Mulvaney might have been, are you sure you're married, sir? By the way, at this point, he's been acting longer than Angela Lansbury. (sighs) But later in this episode of Bullshit, he wrote, Mulvaney made an assertion about the president's directness. You've heard this line before. The president never mentions the aid at all in the phone call. Doesn't say, oh, by the way, I need you to do this, 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 and this, or else uh, the money won't flow. Uh, We all know enough about this president that if if he feels very strongly about something, he's going to put that out there uh, directly, and that didn't happen. In fact, Trump's people know that he constantly speaks and threatens obliquely, indirectly. It is as much the Trump brand as gilded facades and Eastern European wives. This is why the Trump people are constantly going on the air to make the eminently falsifiable claim that Trump doesn't do it. Over two years ago, here is Don Jr. trying to argue the same exact point on Fox after former FBI director Jim Comey said Trump pressured him. You and I both know my father a long time. When he tells you to do something, guess what? There's no ambiguity in it. There's no, hey, I'm hoping. You and I are friends. Hey, I hope this happens, but you got to do your job. That's what he told Comey. Again, this has been contradicted by the facts hundreds of times. Trump engages in evasive and misdirected language all the time. There is paralysis, the, oh, I'm not saying, I'm just saying. There is the mafia-like implied threat, as described by Michael Cohen. Here is former Republican, now independent congressman at a congressional hearing, quoting Michael Cohen. Uh, You suggested that the president sometimes communicates his wishes indirectly. Uh, For example, you said, quote, Mr. Trump did not directly tell me to lie to Congress. That's not how he operates, end quote. Implication, strong suggestion, or the word that Cohen himself used. He doesn't give you questions. He doesn't give you orders. He speaks in a code. He speaks in code. Another variation of this is Trump saying, oh, I'm not going to say it or I'll get in trouble. And then he says it, 
which gives him some, I'd, I'd call it implausible deniability. Here, remember this, during the campaign, he called Ted Cruz a pussy by talking about how terrible it was to call Ted Cruz a pussy. You heard the other night at debate, they asked Ted Cruz, serious question, well, what do you think of waterboarding? Is it okay? And honestly, I thought he'd say absolutely, and he didn't. He said, well, it's, you know, he's concerned about the answer because some people, she just said a terrible thing. You know what she said? Shout it out, because I don't want to... S- <laughs> okay, you're not allowed to say, and I never expect to hear that from you again. She said, I never expect to hear that from you again. She said he's a pussy. That's terrible. Terrible. And of course, all the times he indirectly and passively aggressively abused Jeff Sessions in public instead of directly firing him. Uh, I told you before, I'm very disappointed with the attorney general, uh, but we will see what happens. Time will tell. Time will tell. Sessions took 16 more months of sideways barbs from the time those words were spoken. So there's your direct, blunt, to the point president. Now, over on This Week This Week, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was questioned by George Stephanopoulos about the administration's policy of withholding weapons in exchange, quid, for investigating political rivals, pro quo. George Stephanopoulos asked him this. So do you agree then with Senator McKessie that would have been inappropriate to withhold the military aid uh, unless this political investigation was pursued? George, I'm I'm telling you what I was involved with. I'm telling you what um, I saw transpiring and how President Trump uh, was working to make the evaluation about whether it was appropriate to provide this assistance. But that's what I'm what I'm asking is, would it be appropriate to condition that? George, I'm I'm not going to get into hypotheticals and secondary things based on someone what someone else has said. George, you would have never done it when you were the spokesman. I'm not going to do it. So at this point, Stephanopoulos's antenna twitches. Wait. We all heard the Mick Mulvaney admission of quid pro quo. He said it happened. Except it's not a hypothetical. We saw the chief of staff, the acting chief of staff right there. George, you just said, if this happened, that is by definition a hypothetical. The chief of staff said it did. George, you asked me if this happened. It's a hypothetical. If. The question did start with an if. Questions that start with an if are hypothetical, even if the if isn't really an if, but also a did, because that did happen. I guess maybe I could construct a sentence that starts with an if that's not technically a hypothetical. How about something like this? If you hadn't put out the partial transcript of the Ukrainian conversation, wouldn't your administration officials sweat and stammer a lot less on the Sunday shows? Eh, Maybe that technically is a hypothetical. But I got to hand it to these Trump administration officials. They are so precise about language. They are so desirous of all the right words and all the right questions. Well, here is a word to describe their words and the words they deploy in the service of their arguments. It is a word that is sure to get a working over in the near term. And that word is unimpeachable. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Daniel Schrader. His secret Twitter name is Charlemagne Perfecto. Here's another gist producer for you, Christina DeJosa. You may know her. Here's another gist producer for you, Christina DeJosa. You may know her by her Twitter lurker account name, Antoinette Aromatica. The gist. Follow us on secret Twitter at Gaspard Gaspard. And thanks for listening. <laughs>